1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing upon it now. Well, this verse, as I said in verse 30, this first half of verse 30, as we look at this, the theme here is union with Christ, united to Christ. Um, as it says. Um, And that's the main point of this verse, union in Christ. Uh, And I want you to glory in this truth. And I want you, as we meditate and look upon this this morning, I want you to glory and revel in this wonderful truth from God's Word because it is a glorious doctrine indeed. Uh, It's not merely an abstract, something outside, out there, uh, an abstraction, but life itself for you, your life, you, united to Jesus, your Savior. And so as we look at this, we're going to look at a number of facets um, of what this is. We're going to look at, as you see an outline in the back of your liturgy, uh, the source of our union, at the source of our union, which of course is God alone, as we see in the verse. And then we'll look at the security of our union, right? Which of course, uh, if our, uh, the source is God, it is a secure uh, union. Um, and so we'll look at perseverance, Um, in that union and then thirdly we'll look at the symptoms of that union right those things that evidence uh, our union with Christ right you believe you have faith you are in Christ you love Christ that's reflected in our lives these are symptoms or evidence of that union and then finally fourthly the so what of our union so what and the so what um Uh, In summary, is our growth, our life, our comfort, our rescue, our challenge, our relief, our assurance, our confidence, our protection, and indeed our security uh, in that union. Uh, But before we run through some of these uh, points, it'll help us to explain a little bit um, of what we mean when we talk about union with Christ. Uh, Union with Christ. This is a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery, and that makes sense, right? It makes sense. We are not God. We are finite. Uh, One of my professors was fond of saying, um, God is God, and I am not. Uh, And this, of course, is something uh, properly basic and simple, but we must remember this. We are finite. We are not God who is infinite. We'll be looking at things that are profound. We'll be looking at this union with Christ, and we'll just be dipping our toe into it. Indeed, it is a vast uh, ocean of glory, um, uh, in God's word. But what is union? How, have, how have, has this been defined or articulated um, in the history of the church? 
Well, I think uh, Louis Burkhoff, a uh, Dutch theologian, um, in his Systematic Theology, he gives a, a definition that I think is, um, is well put, and he says this, Burkhoff says, Union is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and their salvation. And just to repeat the first part of that, union is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. Intimate, vital, and spiritual union. So we're talking about union. It's a connection between one person and another um, in simplest terms. And we who are Christians, the Bible tells us, are united to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, what happened to Jesus and what was done by Jesus for us and to Jesus, to Jesus uh, was done for us. And we are so closely connected to Christ. That what is true of him is true of you if you belong to him, if you believe and trust in him. And we see this in many places in scripture, right? Colossians. In Colossians, Paul tells us that we are seated with God in the heavenlies. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or thought about that at any length. We are seated with God in the heavenlies. In Philippians, Paul says that we are citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's in glory. What does this mean? These things are beyond us uh, in a large measure. But why does he say things like this? He says them because they're true uh, and because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. We are united to him, right? He is he 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 has bodily ascended, right? We think about the complex of the work of what Jesus did. He died, uh, he was crucified, died, was raised, and he ascended into glory. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But he did so bodily, right? And by his deity, of course, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is here and everywhere. But in his true humanity, he is at the right hand of the Father. But because we are connected by the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, that same Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep, the same Spirit who hovered over the Virgin Mary, it is by that same Spirit that we are connected to this ascended Lord Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. And so Christ's people, brothers and sisters, that is you, you are united to him by the Holy Spirit. You are in him, this profane, there's this saturation of the New Testament of that phrase, in him. And we'll see more of this um, as we move along. But let's go now to the source of our union. Uh, the source of our union. Um, in the context, of course, we've seen uh, in that little chiasm that we, look, we, we recognized, uh, acknowledged last week in verses 29, 30, and then 31. Uh, we've already seen that there is no boasting. Right again, verse 29. Uh, so, well, let's look at, the, let's look at this, this God chooses, this cho- choice language uh, before that, starting in verse uh, 20, uh, 26 to 27. Um, God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. And then verse 29 gives you the why. So that no human being may boast in his presence. And then verse 31, so that, as it is written, let, no, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. But verse 30, the center of that little chiasm. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
So God is the source of our union with Christ. Remember, we looked at a number of different ways to to explain that or, or translate that from the original language. God is the source. He is the life source. He is our source of life in Christ. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Not God and you, not God and your works, but God alone is the source, right? Boasting is excluded. Any other factor is excluded from verse 29 to verse 31. No boasting, but in God alone. It is from God, literally. It is from of God, from him that you were in Christ Jesus. God is the source of your union. And if God is the source, and because God is the source of your life in Christ, the source of your life, your life source, then it follows, does it not? It follows that your life is unconquerably secure. It is secure. And that's our second point there. The security of our union. It's very disheartening, as many of you, most of you know, uh, that so much of modern contemporary uh, Christianity uh, holds to an insecure union. They hold to a union that is not secure. Our salvation... Our position in Christ, rather, is either infallible and secure, or it is not. It either is or it is not. And I'm declaring to you this morning that if you're united to Christ, you are secure in Christ. You are secure. And I'm not going to belabor this point because it is so clear in Scripture, but I did want to give you a little bit of the testimony of God's Word regarding this security. And so I'm going to uh, read a number of verses. You can write them down. You don't need to turn them. You probably shouldn't turn to them at this point. But these would be good verses to meditate on uh, later uh, uh, for the remainder of your Lord's Day. Um, but listen to what God's Word says, starting in John chapter 6, verse 37 uh, and 39. John says, And that the fa- all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, will I, never, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, verse 28 and 29, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Secure indeed, security Indeed, John 17, 11, and I am no longer in the world. John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, the Lord pleading to the Father, keep them in your name, which you gave me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then moving to the epistles in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul says, the apostle Paul says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is speaking uh, in in a past tense of a certainty of something that will happen in the future. It is so certain. Those whom he justified, they will be glorified. And then moving down to verse 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For I am sure that neither... Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And then one last one from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Glorious indeed. This, uh, this sampling um, from the epistles or from, from the New Testament. And I trust that you can feel the weight as you hear this. Feel the weight of what the Bible is declaring regarding the security of your salvation. God is the source of our union in Christ. And because he is the source, our union is indeed secure. It is secure. Now let's look more at the, uh, the outworking of all of this um, or what this looks like, right? Point three, the symptoms of our union. Uh, the symptoms of our union. You know, as uh, many people, as you know, I mean, you're aware of this, that many people critique and criticize uh, Reformed and Presbyterian folks uh, like, like us. Um, you've all heard it, I'm sure. Uh, they, say that, they say that you are cold and dead. Have you heard this before? Uh, reformed people are cold and dead. Sadly and tragically, uh, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. And we need to own that, and that should never be the case for us um, who've been made alive in Christ. But mostly that criticism when it comes, when we hear these kinds of things, um, it comes because uh, we don't match up to their expectations of what it is to be warm and alive. Right? That's what it is. It's as they define it. Right? And so if we need to think about that, right? their uh, definition of that. And so if being warm and alive means doing some of the things uh, that some of our charismatic or our evangelical friends are doing, uh, then cold and dead might be a better option. Um, some of the things that go on in, in these churches, I, I, I imagine that you're aware of some of these things. Um, being drunk in the spirit, um, being in a trance-like state, barking in the spirit in worship services. Are you aware of these things? Uh, one of my professors used to say, I'm not barking for anyone. <laughs> uh, but if that's the kind of thing that, that some people were saying is warm and alive, uh, it's probably better not to be warm and alive. Um, some people criticize uh, us Reformed Presbyterian people for uh, saying that we don't care about the Holy Spirit. Right? We don't have the Holy Spirit in our thinking, in our theology, in our lives, in our churches. Or that we don't have use for the Holy Spirit, or that we ignore the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, and the response to that is, that if that's what you think, uh, then you don't understand us in the least. You don't understand us at all if that's what you think. We passionately affirm and declare with God's word that the Holy Spirit has made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's curious that often it's the same people, those people who make this accusation, you don't think that they're all that bad. Right? They disavow, they reject the idea of total depravity. They reject the idea that they're dead. They say that they're what? They're wounded. They're badly wounded. 
But is that what Paul says? Is that what the New Testament says about uh, uh, by nature who we are, what we are? We follow Paul. When Paul said, uh, we say as well, we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. That's radical language. It's a radical picture. No life. We were dead. And that's what Paul says we are by nature. Uh, and the only way that we can be made alive is for that same Holy Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep at creation. It's for that Spirit to sovereignly work and operate through the preaching of the gospel and invade hearts and invade our minds and our wills and make what was dead alive. What is more glorious than that? Right, Making, bringing life out of death. And so... Uh, he does so, and he must do so, so that we're able to think in the way that God would have us to think and to love the things that God wants us to love and to choose the things that God would want us to choose. Because apart from the sovereign working, the regenerating work of that Holy Spirit, the making us alive by the Holy Spirit, apart from that, there is no life. There is no life. So when you hear this accusation or somebody tells you criticizes you, you don't have much view of the Holy Spirit. You can tell them, uh, you don't understand in the least what you're talking about, what we're all about. You tell them, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. God still does raise the dead. You tell them, I know that because he raised me. And if you belong to him, he raised you as well. And you tell them that God, the Holy Spirit came and he made you alive. And not only that, but that he united you to Christ through faith that he worked through the preaching of the gospel. Remember that message, that word of the cross that Paul said is foolishness, the foolishness of preaching. He calls it that because to the world, that's what it is. Some man stands up here week after week, right? Think about that from their view, telling you about some rabbi who was crucified and he died, and he was raised on the third day, and supposedly he's ascended into glory and seated at the right hand of the Father. To the world, that is just crazy. It's foolishness. It is a death trap, remember, a stumbling block. But the crazy thing is, it's true. That's what happened. You would not be alive. You would not have life had it not happened. And they will never understand and you will never understand it or believe it or have confidence in it or trust it or trust in him who was raised for you until God the Spirit gives you ears to hear and gives you eyes to see and exchanges that stone heart that you have for a heart of flesh that beats for him. And if and until he gives you a mind that is able to understand and a will that is able to be not completely at war with God because that's the declaration of Scripture. That's your nature beforehand. And this all comes, all comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us faith. And that faith connects us to Christ. And that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And he abides. He lives with us. And we are connected. We are united to Christ. So that there is a profound mystery at the heart of our faith. The accusation goes on. You Reformed Presbyterian people. Your faith is all in your head. Ours is a heart religion. Have you heard this? We have a heart religion. We're all about the spirit. As if those two are at odds with each other. But they're not. They're not. 
But we again respond by saying, sorry, brother, you don't in the least bit understand what we're all about. Because if that's what they think, they're not understanding. And we respond, and we, we, you just don't get it. I wonder how many of you remember a number of years ago, I don't know how many now, I've lost track, but there was uh, the, the emergence of the emergent church movement. Have you heard of this phrase? The emerging or the emergent church. Years back, they were, well, I won't try to unfold all that it was, what it, well, that it was about, but they were, uh, they, they, were, they were seeking something transcendent and see, seeking something mysterious. And they were all about couches and candles and coffee, uh, as one of my um, professors used to say. Couches and candles and coffee. Right? And they're looking for mystery in the church and in their faith. And I get that to some extent. I understand that, that um, in some respect. But it's possible, probably, you know, sitting in small circles and doing other odd things and um, being fascinated by couches and coffee and candles, maybe those are not the places where we want to find mysteries. Because there is a profound mystery, a profound mystery at the heart of our faith. There are many mysteries. Right? There are many mysteries. And again, we would expect this. Right? We would want this and expect this. To have, uh, uh, you know, why would, we, why would we want and expect to have a faith that we can completely, exhaustively comprehend and understand? And in fact, if you look at the history of the church, there are many, many heresies have arisen in an attempt to do precisely that, to explain exhaustively in our finite minds the infinite God. Leads to heresy, and we can point to a num- to heresy after heresy after heresy that does this. And many have gone astray seeking a complete mystery, right? On the other side, and seeking it in wrong places. We have mystery in our faith. We do have mystery. Right? Think of the Trinity God is one God and three persons. We can discuss that that is true, the truth of that. We can look at scriptures and what the scriptures say about that. But we can't ex- explain how that happens or how that is. What about God, the Son, taking on flesh, becoming incarnate? Is there a mystery to that? That there was a time when God, the Son, did not have humanity, and then he took on humanity upon himself in the womb of a virgin? That God the Son was in the womb of a virgin. Think about that. Mary carried God the Son. She delivered him. She nursed him. He had an umbilical cord. That's how human he was. That's how human he remains to be. We are connected to that truly human Savior by the Holy Spirit who made us alive and who's given us faith and in whom we live our lives. So this idea of union with Christ is essential. It is a biblical doctrine. It's a spiritual doctrine. And indeed, it is a mysterious doctrine. Critics and others say they want mystery. We tell them, contemplate the Trinity, brother. Contemplate, think about the dual nature of Christ. Or we tell them, you want mystery? Come to the Lord's table. There's a mystery to it. Is the Lord's Supper without mystery? No, there's something mysterious going on there. How how does it work that we feed on Christ, as he says in John 6? We can't exactly say, because we don't exactly know. We can look at Scripture, we can say what the Bible says, we can call the information. We know what's true, 
We know what the Word says. We know what we confess as a church and what the church has confessed historically. But we can't tell you exactly how that happens. It is beyond us. It's a mystery. And in case any of you are getting uncomfortable about, about this mysterious nature, um, think of, I, 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 I bring in as um, evidence um, in regards to this, one of the stalwarts of Reformed Orthodoxy, um, Herman Bovink, in his great magisterial dogmatics, the first page, the first chapter of the first book, he says, God is a mystery. God is a mystery. Not a cold, dead man. Someone with a passion for Christ in his Lord, whom he studied and wrote so prolifically about. And so if you want mystery, a profound mystery is that we are united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit. That's a profound mystery. How is it that at one moment you were dead in your sins and trespasses? Most of you probably remember that state. Some of you may not, if you ever had the blessing of being raised in a covenant home. And it is a blessing that you should revel in. If, any you, if that's the case for any of you, you should give thanks to God if that's the case for you. Give God thanks that you were raised in a covenant home. Give thanks that you didn't have to live through the blindness and the bitterness and the scars and the pain and the dirt of unbelief. Praise God that you can't relate to that. And for those of you who have young children here, you give thanks as well, not only for the blessing of those covenant children, but that they may, that they may be spared a life out of the world and that they were spared a life of being out of the church and in the world. And pray that God would protect them and they would indeed send his spirit to internally call them and unite them to Jesus by faith as he has offered to them and that they would take hold of the promises given them in their baptism. But some of us do remember that state. At one moment, how is it that at one moment we are dead in our sins and trespasses? Do you remember that? Blindness. And then you could see. And you could see. It's like the man born blind in John 9. You remember the story. The account, the event of this man born blind. And the question comes to Jesus. Who sinned? Was it he or his parents that made him like this? You remember what Jesus said? You missed the point. You missed the point. And they questioned the blind man, what happened to you? And he says, I was blind and then I could see. But how did it happen? He said, well, there's some mud and he put it on my eyes. I could see. I was blind and now I could see. He didn't know what happened. Who was the guy who did it? They asked him. I don't know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And that's a really easy way to share your faith, right? I'm a strong proponent in understanding and studying and apologetics and all that. But this is a really easy way to share your faith or to answer to your faith. All you do is say, this is what I know to be true. Deal with it. You just have to tell them the truth. The blind man's parents didn't tell the truth. Why didn't they? They were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. But the man who was born blind, he knew the truth. And finally, he says to those who are asking him all these questions, he says, you're asking me all these questions. Why? You want to be his follower too? Of course,
leprosy. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. How did the man become sighted who was born blind? It was God the Holy Spirit hovered over him and made him who was dead alive. Or think of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel. What did God say there in the book of Ezekiel? He tells Ezekiel, Son of man, say to these bones, live. And every Lord's day, every Lord's day, across the globe, pastors stand before congregations and they say, live. And God the Holy Spirit empowers that gospel word as it goes out. And it's a powerful word. The power of God unto, unto salvation. It is a powerful word. It's as powerful as when God said, let there be light. And there was. And the word goes forth, let there be life. And there is. Dead people still raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The effectual calling. Because it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that unites you to Christ and makes you alive with Christ and raises you with Christ and connects you to Christ and gives you the life of Christ so that it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, Galatians 2 says. And all that happens when the foolishness of the gospel is preached. And God the Holy Spirit empowers that word and uses it to make the dead live. Death to life is the symptom of union to Christ. Right? They said, we don't have a view of the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't have use or need of the Holy Spirit. We're not interested in the, the Holy Spirit. We don't have mystery. A friend of mine used to say, it's true that we don't do a lot of things that some people think are interesting. Right? Having healing services, like slaying the Spirit, those kinds of things, these sensational things, barking, in the Spirit, being drunk in the Spirit, kinds of services. We don't do interesting things like that, he would say. But we just happen to think that the gospel is most interesting. What is more sensational than that, properly understood? What's more glorious than the gospel? This view of union with Christ is essential to our faith. It is a biblical doctrine. It is a vital doctrine. It is a spiritual doctrine. It is a mysterious doctrine. The scripture uses a number of images as we look at um, uh, the way that this is spoken of in the Bible to talk about our union with Christ. Right? Remember Jesus in John 15 uses the image of vines and branches. Paul speaks of husbands and wives, of foundations and buildings, of a head and body. And these are all different ways talking about union with Christ. What they're saying there is just that we are as united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, as the head is united to the body, as the vine is connected to the branches, as the husband is connected to the wife. We are one flesh, remember. That's why Paul and Colossians can say that we are so united to Christ that the world, who still hates Jesus, by the way, we are so united, Paul says, that they do to us what they can't do to Jesus because he's no longer bodily here. And if you were here right now, he'd be crucified all over again. Right? You've heard people say, oh, if I just could see him, I would believe. 
No, you wouldn't. You would seek to destroy him. Because that's what humans do who are in Adam by nature. That's what they do. They hate God by nature. And apart from the powerful, gracious working of God, the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ, we are, as Paul said in Ephesians, without hope. We're lost without that power. It's not for lack of evidence that, that, that man remains in his wicked state. It's for lack of the powerful, sovereign working of the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to see change, you want to see life in your neighbors, in your relatives and loved ones and co-workers, if that's what you want to see, pray for the grace of God in Christ, that God, the Holy Spirit, would come to them and would overwhelm their hearts and their lives and then make them alive, those who were dead in their sins and trespasses. Right? That is the most interesting and amazing and mind-blowing and wonderful and powerful thing possible. Paul, you know, uses, he uses specific language in uh, Ephesians, uh, particularly chapter 1. And again, uh, you, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Uh, and we see there that there's a... A condensed in, in a condensed form, right? Again, the saturation of this language of in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Him. Um, look, if you would, please, at verse number one. Right, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then go down to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Uh, and then verse 4, even as he chose us in him, right? The antecedent is Christ, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then verse 5, he uses the preposition through. Uh, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And he goes on, right? And see how Paul keeps bringing that back up. In Christ, in Christ. And brothers and sisters, God loved you who are His from all eternity. But you don't come into possession of that love until and unless you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ in time. The union we have with Christ, our in Christ state, is rooted in eternity. It's rooted in God's electing love. But it comes into effect in time. And that's why it's so crucial that we understand the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is not at odds with the doctrine of union. They go together. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. He obeyed for sinners. Paul says that there is now what? No condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. You come into possession of this union with Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, which is what? It is receiving and resting in Christ and His finished work. That's it. Resting and receiving. Or to put it another way, as been put in our, in our confession, those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, is the gift of God. 
right? And you can see the echoes of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. So no one can boast. So no one can boast. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. We receive and we rest in Christ. It's faith alone and Christ alone. And so next we come to the number four, the, the so what of our union uh, in Christ. Flowing out of that union with Christ. Right? Flowing out of that union uh, that, that, that we take hold of by faith and we trust in Christ, which is grounded in God's eternal love for us in Christ. Ephesians 1 again. Uh, by which he loved us for nothing but his own good pleasure. We take possession of that by faith, which itself, again, is a gift of God. And flowing out of that is what we call growth in godliness or sanctification. Sanctification. Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 17 is another well-beloved verse that I'm probably more of you have memorized than I do. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Right? And that's a, one of those prepositions, right? It's a prepositional phrase. It was in Christ. Uh, again, a grammar alert like last week. It's, it's a locative phrase. It's a phrase of location. We're located somewhere. Where is that? In Christ. It's in Christ. We are located in Christ, and that's where we need to be. That's what we need. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you're not in Christ, you're out of Christ. And if you're out of Christ, you are still in your sins. In your sin, God's wrath remains upon you. And the only way that you can be in Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone. Right again, I'll read from Ephesians uh, 2.10. Ephesians 2, verse 10, and I wonder how many of us have thought much about this verse. Um, Ephesians 2, 10, for, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? Usually we look at this and we say, oh, we were created for something, it's for good works. Right? But it's, we were created in Christ Jesus. We were created in Christ Jesus. Right? Have you ever thought about that? You were created by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. These are what Paul means when he says in Christ. He's speaking of what we call, what we call union with Christ. We've been united to Christ. We've been created in Christ. We've been recreated in Christ. And you better believe that we have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's how all this happens. We have Paul's doctrine. It's not the TV evangelist doctrine. It's Paul's doctrine because it's God's doctrine. Paul said in Romans 6, we were buried with him. Therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, right, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's an essential truth of our faith. How essential is this? How essential is the doctrine of union? So it's so significant. John Calvin said this. I, I quoted this last week, but it bears repeating. He said, How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? 
Well, first we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separate, separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of human race remains useless and of no value for us as long as we're outside of him. And therefore to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours to dwell within us. You've got to be in Christ to benefit from Christ. And you're only in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And so when you come to know the greatness of sin, you come to know the greatness of your sin and misery, and God graciously uses his law to teach you and show you this, how lost and wretched and needy and miserable you are out of Christ. And when you finally understand that, and that, by the way, is a gift as well, the revelation of your sinfulness. Because you need to know your true condition and what you need. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. And the good news is, there is a Savior. There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And he loves His people. And he accomplished their redemption. And He empowers them to live the Christian life by grace, not by works. We do works, but we do them by grace. So the Apostle can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. This is not the personality-driven life. It's not the purpose-driven life. It's not the law-driven life. It's not the commandment-driven life. It's the gospel-driven life born out of a union to Christ. And I'll remind us as well so we don't become too familiar and forget um, just who Paul was. Sometimes we overlook the the significance and severity of who Saul, Paul was. Um, This man who got plucked from the fire and gave him life, and he used him to pen two-thirds of the New Testament and be the missionary to the Gentiles. Paul was a man who knew what it was like to try to please God by being good. He knew what it was like to try to present himself to God on the basis of his lineage or on the basis that he had memorized uh, the first five books of the Bible. And what did God show him? That that was impossible. That was impossible. God knocked him down and he covered his eyes and he showed him that he could not please God in that way. And God told Paul, this rabbi whose people you are persecuting him, and by the way it says, uh, why are you persecuting Christ? Because they're united to him and persecuting the people are persecuting Christ. He says, by the way, that rabbi, he did this all for you. God had to break Paul and show Paul that everything that he had done was dung, was rubbish. The word is dung is what it says. It's powerful. It's as nothing. It's gross. It's gross before God. It's of no value for his righteousness before God. Paul was a man who was gripped to the core with the gospel of Christ. The good news was for him. was for him. You want to change a man, read Acts uh, 7 and 8 and the rest of uh, the book of Acts, frankly. 
And brothers and sisters, if you were Christ, the good news was for you too. That's how you became a Christian. Christ loves you. And you're united to him by the faith, uh, by faith, united to him by, by the Holy Spirit, so that you're identified with him. And you are so identified with him that you've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. So that's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to you because of your union with him. And the good news is that because you've been crucified with him, you're what? You're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. You're raised to walk in newness of life. You're dead to what you used to be, a rebel, sinner, children of wrath. You're dead to what you used to think and what to what used to be important to you and to what others used to think of you and think about you. What you care about now is what Jesus says. And he says what to you, child of God? He says you are righteous. You're a new creation. You're a friend. You're a brother. You're clean. That's you. That's you, Christian. And the only way you can be united to Christ is to be right with God by being in Christ by faith. God the Holy Spirit made you alive who were dead. And he did it by working faith in your hearts so that you would trust in Jesus. And through that, he connects you to him. And you live out of that day by day and moment by moment and hour by hour for all of your lives because that's who you are. And it's that union, by the way, that the Word of God says is strengthened as you come to the table and as you witness baptism and as you hear the Word and as you pray. It all hangs together because God is good and He's merciful. He condescends to us. We must bring this to a close. As you go back from here and back into the pilgrim land in which you are strangers, which is not your true home, go knowing to whom you are united and because of that union that you are citizens of glory. And in this strange land, go in strength and courage and comfort. For you are united to the one who is victorious and who will one day bring you to where he is. Praise him, brothers and sisters, and give him glory. Amen. Let's pray.